Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am here with Gurdeep Paul. Gurdeep is a corporate vice president with Microsoft. Gurdeep, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Thank you, Sam. Really excited to be here. Uh, I'm super excited for our conversation today, as is our typical flow. I'd love to have you start by introducing yourself. You've had quite a career at Microsoft, culminating in your work in AI and autonomous systems. Tell us a little bit about your background and, and how you came to work in this field. Thanks, Sam. I've had a really nice long run at Microsoft, as, as you mentioned. Uh, in fact, today is my 31st anniversary at Microsoft. Wow. So yeah, it's been a long career, but I've really had a great time. In fact, I uh, feel like I've been into the candy store like three times, you know. So my career can be divided into three parts. I worked on um, networking and operating systems. So that was sort of my first gig at Microsoft. I was very fortunate to work on a lot of the internet technologies when they were first rolled out in operating systems. I worked on VPNs. I worked on remote access. And then um, I worked up to Windows XP. I was the general manager for Windows networking, where we shipped Wi-Fi for the first time in a general purpose operating system. And then uh, at that time, I moved over to work on communications and I started Microsoft's communications business. So these are products that you may remember from the past, things like uh, Office Communication Server, which became Link, which became Skype for Business, which is now Teams. So started that business from scratch uh, and all the way until we announced Teams. Uh, in fact, a few days before we announced Teams, is I was involved with that business. Though I'd had a stint in the middle on AI, and I came back to work on AI. So it's been, you know, I would say roughly three parts to my career and the latest being AI. And I've had lots of fun in all of them. That's awesome. I talked to so many people at Microsoft who are working in AI and a lot of them started their careers working on Bing. You're maybe one of the, uh, the outliers in that regard. Well, you know, the funny thing is that first stint I'd mentioned on AI was actually in the Bing team. Okay. Working <laughs> And uh, I was running Microsoft Speech. I was uh, running some of our uh, interesting explorations we were doing in Bing, you know, recognizing objects. In fact, some of the image stabilization work with Vention to HoloLens actually came out of that group. So, yeah, I worked on maps and, you know, lots of interesting stuff. <laughs> That's awesome. So tell us a little bit about autonomous systems and some of the work you're doing in that area. Yeah. So, you know, for the last four years or so, I've been focused on emerging technology and how it can be applied to interesting business problems. And, you know, in that regard, I've worked on some interesting technology in the language space, language understanding space, worked on ambient intelligence where, you know, you could actually make sense of a space, sort of make uh, reality computable, if you will. And then as I was exploring interesting emergent AI, which can solve business problems, we started focusing on autonomous systems. And uh, that was interesting to us, not just as a, very interesting aspect of which AI was enabling, but also Microsoft didn't have a lot of focus in that area before. So, you know, when I talked to Satya and the time Harry Shum was here, you know, we decided this was an area we were going to go invest in. Interesting. And one of those investments was the acquisition of a company called Bonsai. This is a company that I know well. I interviewed one of the founders, Mark Hammond. This was back in 2017. It's hard to believe it was that long ago. And the company had a really interesting take on using technologies that are still difficult for folks to put to productive use, namely reinforcement learning. And their take on it was this idea of machine teaching. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about that acquisition, the role that it plays in the way Microsoft thinks about autonomous systems and elaborate on this idea of machine teaching and some of the things that Bonsai brings to the table. Sure, absolutely. So, uh, you know, when we started focusing on autonomous systems, we were like trying to get our hands around this thing. People interpret autonomous systems many different ways. You know, some people think it's only about autonomous driving. So let's build a vertical stack. Some people think about robots, you know, these humanoid robots with arms and joints and so on. 
And we say, what is our point of view? And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we look at our own capabilities. So we're, we're a software company. You know, what is a software interpretation of the space? And it was with this sort of point of view that we started thinking about it. There was some work going on in Microsoft Research at the time, which I'll, I'll talk more about. And uh, that's when I first met Mark and team. And we had a really good discussion. And, you know, as we finished the first meeting, I remember this thing going through my head, you know, that this is like such a you know, great approach. And it really fits into how we are starting to think about the space and make sense to us. And then I also thought, God, this feels like, you know, just the wrong thing for a startup to do. You start building platforms <laughs> and tools. It's a tough uh, this thing. And, you know, Mark is such an incredible guy. I think you've talked to him, so you know that. <laughs> so when we first finished the acquisition, he, he shared that with me too. He says, every VC I talked to, he says, why are you doing this? You know, this is like the kind of thing Microsoft should be doing. So it was a, you know, a marriage sort of made in heaven, as it were. And so we acquired that company and it's been, you know, really great actually working with Mark and picking up from some incredible thinking that, you know, he and Keen had done and the team that was there. And then actually really expanding on that and, you know, really helping it realize its potential and also making it much more of an enterprise ready sort of an offering. Because, you know, this space is, I mean, as mission critical and as important as it gets. So that's been, you know, sort of a very fun journey for the last two and a half years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One of the ways I've heard you describe the way you're approaching autonomous systems or the, the, that world broadly, and I may be, it's two words and I still may butcher one of them, but it's like this marriage of bits and is it atoms that you say or molecules or something else? But the idea is that, uh, and this was something that was core to the way Banzai articulated, you know, what they called then industrial AI. It's a different problem when you're applying AI solely in a software world, recommendations, you know, on a website or, you know, looking at customer churn to when you're actually trying to move physical goods or devices or, you know, systems. Yeah. Elaborate on what you've seen in terms of the different requirements that come up in that world. Absolutely. And, you know, this is, again, a very important point. You know, when we start focusing on autonomous systems, you know, I know people asking me about half the time, oh, you're talking about RPA, right? Uh, yeah. And I said, no, no, I'm not talking about RPA. And, of course, it doesn't help when some of the RPA companies were calling their tech robots and, you know, it could take action and so on. So it was, in some ways, just a way for us to be clear about what we are doing. And we said, no, we're actually focused on atoms, not uh, things which just deal with bits. And of course, you know, to digitize anything, you have to go from atoms to bits and then reason over it. But that became sort of the mainstay for us. The biggest difference, I would say, between those two worlds is that, you know, there is, in the physical world, you know, it is governed by some things like physics, the physical world, you know, if you're into, you know, of course, there's Newtonian physics, and then you get into some of the multi-joint movements, and you, once you get into fluids, you know, that's a whole different kind of a physics which sort of comes in. So you have to really think about modeling the real world and how then you can apply the tech towards that. The second thing I would say is that, you know, most of the scenarios in autonomous systems pertain to taking action in the real world. And when you're taking action in the real world, every time you take an action, the real world changes. And this is where, you know, reinforcement learning becomes a very natural mate as an AI technology, you know, for the problems that really apply to the real world, which is great because we have no other science which allows us to take a really sort of an unbounded state space and how do you actually <laughs> can reason within it. And reinforcement learning becomes this really important piece in it. Uh, lastly, I would say is that, you know, every problem that we've looked at from an autonomous system space typically is one where there is uh, there are experts who exist already. You know, so far we haven't been called to a problem where, you know, this is completely new and completely different and, oh, you know, let's solve it for the first time, you know. Yeah, and so tapping into the human expertise became a very important piece of this equation as well, which in some ways you don't need to worry about, you know, Frankly, in the data in data world, you just take just a lot of data, you throw things at it, and then maybe there is judging. You know, certainly, you know, if you want to uh, sort of fine tune the models and so on, 
But uh, that was another interesting aspect of this. Mm -hmm. So we'll be digging a little bit deeper into some of the technology that makes all this happen. But Mm -hmm. you started to mention some of the use case scenarios. Can you dig a little bit deeper into some specific uh, scenarios that you've been working on? Absolutely. And that's, you know, one of the things which makes this very, very interesting to me, because it's literally everything you see in the world around you can be a target for some of the technology that we're building. Everything from smart climate control. You know, this is a field, HVAC control is a field that, uh, you know, has for the last 70 years, you know, is in very incremental improvement. You know, things like fuzzy logic and stuff like that has been used. And, you know, we've seen incredible results using our approach where things have plateaued out in performance. We were able to bring, you know, a much better performance, so either energy savings or better climate control. We've seen oil drilling, horizontal drilling from companies like Shell, where you have these incredibly big machines and they look like these bazookas and, you know, you're drilling with them. And these machines need a pretty high level of precision. So great human experts can do it, but you sometimes need more work than you can actually get that many trained experts on the problem. So being able to guide the drill bits through that. Uh, Cheeto extrusion is a very interesting, complicated process. You know, it's very easy to eat, uh, (laughs) very hard to make. (laughs) You know, I always say, I know there are professional chefs out there, but certainly I cannot make the same kind of eggs every morning. Because even that simple task of, you know, heating the oil and getting it just right and putting the eggs in and, you know, you cannot replicate it every time. But if you're Pepsi and you're making Cheetos, that has to be consistent every time. When you open a bag of Cheetos, everybody's familiar with the fluffiness and the crispness. And and so everybody's a judge and you have to win that every time. So a very hard problem because you have this cornmeal, which was mixed with water It's impacted by, you know, the age of the machine, which is extruding, sometimes impacted by humidity, temperature, all these things. So it's a highly dynamical system. And experts today, you know, they sample and then they tweak and they sample and they tweak. And they're really like sort of very stressful job of trying to keep that quality right. Otherwise, the quality folks will come in and reject the material. So this is a problem we've been able to apply our tools to and basically consistently keep tweaking the parameters of this process so that you can have consistent Cheetos coming out on the other side. Chemical process control, another polymer manufacturing, very, very hard problem. Some of these problems take six months to design the process for producing polymer of a particular grade. And, you know, we've been able to apply this problem there, both in the designing and the actual manufacturing process itself. Our favorite thing, you know, flying things. Bell uh, Flight is a, you know incredible company. You know, they have all kinds of commercial as well as military applications for their, you know, vertical liftoff vehicles and so on. You know, they're trying to bring autonomous capability to those things. So we've been able to apply this towards that as well. So as you can see, there's just... Anything which has control in the real world where there is your sensing and you're picking an action and you're taking that action, sensing, again, this kind of loop exists, you know, this technology can be applied. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's been interesting over the past few years, just reflecting on some of the early conversations I had with Mark and the team at Bonsai around... There's kind of this pendulum in the industry where we started out with kind of, you know, rules, you know, like physics and and how things work. And we've kind of early on in in applying AI, we threw all those rules away and kind of leaned heavily on data and statistics. And uh, over the past few years, there have been efforts both in academia as well as what you're doing to kind of incorporate the rules and the human expertise back into the equation without kind of tossing everything that we've gained in applying data. One of the interesting challenges, you know, when you layer on kind of the the physical world here is simulation. And how do you let an agent explore and learn without destroying helicopters and lots of Cheetos? Share a little bit about the challenge of simulation and how that's evolved to help make some of these problems more tenable. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's such an important piece of this equation. 
Uh, reinforcement learning is great, but reinforcement learning is a very, very, uh, it requires just many, many, many steps. You know, literally just to get a policy to be robust, you can be, you know, six, 60 million cranks in before you start to see your policy start to develop at the appropriate level. The question is, how do you go do that in the real world? And this is, you know, one of the big insights I think the Bonsai folks came up with. And then this was another, some work that was happening in Microsoft Research, coming at it from a very different direction, but they sort of merged together. And this is AirSim, and I can talk more about that. But the ability to model the appropriate aspects of the real world so that you can actually take action against them get the right input back and use that to train the model has been some of the biggest insights here. Because it really, what it says is you're taking the physical world and you're creating a mapping of it in the digital world, which then allows you to train the models quickly. And that's where these simulators come in. Now, simulators can be very, very, uh, depending on the what they're trying to simulate, can be very computationally intensive. And uh, like if you are, you know, Navier-Stokes equations and things like that, I mean, this is, yeah, CFDs. I mean, these are really long-running simulations. And some are, you know, of course, faster. Now, because we are using simulators for training AI, we want to crank this very, very quickly. So sometimes you end up with this problem where the physics, or at least how that physics is approached using these mathematical equations, actually becomes like a big piece of the problem. And so this is an area on how to take simulation and how do you mate it with the training of the AI in a way that you can do it fast, you can do it cheap, and you can frankly do it in parallel. Because that is one of the things you know we have with some of the RL algorithms now is that you can actually take a policy, uh, the last best known policy, you can explore in thousands of machines at the same time you can take the samples and come back and update the policy. And then you take that and again, you fan it out and you've got learners which are learning very quickly. You know, getting all that figured out is actually one of the big things we managed to get done after the acquisition as well. And, uh, you know, it's all running on Azure and uh, really allows us to do stuff efficiently. You mentioned AirSim. What is that and what's the role that it plays? Yeah, so AirSim was a project in Microsoft Research which started off in our in a team that was exploring drones and how do you bring autonomy to drones. And, uh, you know, they had a very similar experience. This was, I think, they started in 2015 or 2000, yeah, 2015. They would go out with their drone in the morning and they would come back uh, with a broken drone in the evening and they would have very, very little data. And it's like, how are we ever going to get enough data to actually get this thing to fly to do even do basic tasks? So that's when, you know, they looked at some of the work that was happening in, frankly, the gaming world. And they looked at uh, some of the incredible scenes that could be rendered uh, with Unreal and Unity and, and those kind of things, which, you know, if you've seen Forza and stuff like that, I mean, these things start to look very real. Mm-hmm. And they said, let's create a simulator for perception-oriented tasks, where you can create a scene and you can integrate physics into that scene for the different objects that are involved. You know, there could be a flying object, it could be a, something with wheels, which is driving, etc. And so you integrate the physics and now you've created an environment in which you can train AI. Now, it could be reinforcement learning where you're sensing. So you model the actual sensors inside this virtual environment and you are able to use that for reinforcement learning and taking actions. Or you can use these sensors that are modeled inside of AirSim itself, and you can just generate lots of data on which you can do supervised learning offline. So for both these purposes. So AirSim, you know, they created this tool for themselves, and they realized it's so powerful, so they put it out as an open source utility. So today it has more than 10,000 stars on GitHub. It is really one of the most popular tools because others are realizing that, you know, this idea of being able to simulate reality is a very, very powerful approach. So can you maybe talk us through for some of the, you know, any of the use cases you described when you go into an environment with a real customer, you know, with, you know, real problems, what's the process to actually get something up and running and demonstrate value that they can, you know, build on? Meaning concrete value as opposed to theoretical POC value. What, what does it take to really do that? 
Yeah, I think, uh, and, and you know, this is something that, you know, we've been working on and we will continue to work on because our goal is to get this to a point where people are able to identify that this is a great tool for the problem that they have. It's not like some sort of a speculative exploring exercise. They know they will definitely get the results if they adopt this tool chain. And going from there to actually training the policy and to be able to export the brain and actually start using it in the real world, that period is pretty short. So this is a journey for us. You know, it started mm-hmm. off fairly long and this thing. Now we are at a point where we are focusing on these so-called solution accelerators, these areas where you know the problem is very clear what we are solving how to solve it is very clear. And then some of the things that you need, like what simulators do you need? Sometimes, you know, folks already have simulators. Other cases, they need a simulator. And then the entire thing is stitched together. And all they need to do is come in and create their variations for the problem, create the policy, and then go ahead and use it. But this is what is needed to take a customer from, hey, I've got a problem. I don't know what this thing does. Oh, maybe I'll understand that. No, okay, now I know kind of a problem. I don't know if the problem can be solved with this or not. So this is what we've been targeting. And as we've gotten our solution accelerators to be very crisp, our own, how we talk to customers, because there's, as you, you know, you're alluding to, there is an education thing here. There is a confidence thing here. And so we have to address all those pieces and we are bringing the customers along the journey. The great thing is, you know, customers like Pepsi, moment one thing they saw successful you know, they looked around the factory and said, I can put this approach on many things. And that's the conversation we're having right now. The same thing with Shell, same thing with Dell. So, you know, this is the kind of the, the journey. Mm-hmm. I appreciate in that the idea that to the contrary of what you might think if you read popular reporting about AI, it's not like a silver bullet, particularly in this domain where you've got some tool chain and it applies to every problem that any customer might have. And it sounds like you're being strategic, selective, and and building kind of expertise and supporting tools around specific areas so that, uh, to your point, when you are engaging with someone, they can have a high degree of confidence that you've done this before, you know how it's going to work and what the process is. Exactly. And you know, the other interesting thing we found, which is, I think, a little unique, compared to some of the other you know, things we've done with AI, is that the experts that we end up talking to in the different industries and these application areas, you know, they have never encountered AI before. Mm. Folks who went to engineering discipline schools, you know, real engineers, not fake engineers like software engineers like us. I mean, these are like mechanical, chemical, you know, what have you. And when they went through college, they did MATLAB and they mm-hmm. did learn Simulink and so on. And they have relied on a set of tools that have given them employment, given them career success, and stood the test of time. And here, you know, these five guys walk in with a swag and, you know, hey, we got AI for you. And, you know, it's called reinforcement learning. You gotta, it's really awesome. You gotta try it. I mean, that just doesn't work. You should really bring them along. And then they have some real, real uh, things that we've had to sort of go and take in like safety. You know, even if this thing worked, they want to be able to assert that this thing is going to do something crazy. I mean, when you have that horizontal drilling machine from Shell, and I mean, this thing can drill through anything. I mean, it's a huge thing. There was a Wall Street Journal article about three years ago when we first did this project, two years ago we did Shell. And, you know, for them, they want to make sure that this thing actually is going to be safe and not going to create another new problem (laughs) while it's solved for one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's you know it's been a learning thing for us, but it's the need for education, the need for bringing these folks along, and this is one of the reasons we did this project Moab, which is this very interesting uh, device. It's like a toy, basically. It's a you know there are three robotic arms, if you will, and there's a clear plate on top, and the task is to balance a ping pong ball on this device on this plate. Now, this problem, of course, they'll immediately engineers will go to PID, right? I mean, PID control is something, you know, we've yes. all done in college. And guess what? So we said, first, let's start with PID. Oh, PID does a pretty good job. But then he said, okay, well, I'm going to toss the ball onto the plate and see if PID catches it. Well, it turns out PID doesn't catch it. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
So that starts. Then you say, I'm going to add more complexity. How about we try to make the ball go in a, around the edge of this plate? So as the problem progresses in complexity, you now realize that the only way you can solve it is if you had something like our tool chain, which we had you know, with Bonsai. You create a simulator and you have a policy which you're training and then you're able to get to that level of performance. So we did this solely to bring engineers who are used to a particular way along and to start to believe and to start to get excited about this. So we created this sort of metaphor in which we could connect together with them. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting. It reminds me of this idea of, you know, why deep learning is is so important and software 2.0 and and how, you know, what is where, where it's particularly powerful is in solving problems that we didn't know how to write the rules for. Like in computer vision, like how do you identify a cat versus a dog? Write the rules for that. Who knows how to do that? But the neural network can figure that out. And similarly, there is a a range of problems that PID is easily applied to, but there's also a level of complexity that it is difficult to apply it to. And that is where you're finding the value in applying RL. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, we've seen that either there were just too many moving parts, so the folks had achieved automation, but they have not received autonomy. Mm-hmm. And so either it's that class of problems where we're getting traction, or that with the existing methods, they have plateaued out in performance. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there is more performance to be had. And this is incredible. Like, you would think, like, you know, we've figured everything out, right? I mean, as a society and with all the advancements that's happened. But HVAC control in buildings, we've been able to get startling results. I mean, this is millions of dollars, like, on a campus that you can save. And then also all the green benefits that you get from that. So there's just tremendous opportunity. So maybe let's drill into that example more, because I do want to get to kind of a more concrete understanding of what does the process look like? I've got a data center or a physical plant or something, and, you know, I have my HVAC costs are through the roof. And someone told me about this AI thing on an airplane and I call Gradeep, like... (laughs) What's the first thing that I do and how do I get from there to some cost reduction or greater efficiency or whatever my goal is applying some of this stuff we're talking about? Yeah. So in this particular case, you know, that's we're focusing one of our solution accelerators just on this use case. Okay. And so we are able to say with very high confidence that if you can give us this information, which is typically you can have data that you might have collected because a lot of these are now sort of IoT sort of devices, the data that you've collected. We're able to go from that data to we ingest that. And in this case, which is sort of another double click on the simulation thing, we're able to actually create a data-driven simulator. And we are able to now start creating a policy. Now they do need to specify, and this is where machine teaching comes in, they need to specify to us what behavior they are desiring, which means that, you know, that specification can be, it's fairly, you know, flexible. So you could say things like, I want it to be really warm between these times of the day. Or you could say, if the outside temperature, which becomes one of the state variables, which goes into creating the brain, if that variable is outside of this range, then I want this kind of a behavior. You know, in summer, I want it to be cooler. and uh, In winter, I want it to be warmer. All those inputs that are there now create a policy for me, which automatically controls the HVAC system, which means, you know, turning on the fan or turning on the heat or turning on the cooling and to do it dynamically. Because once this brain is built, all you have to do is to connect the inputs and the actions. So inputs is where we are sampling the state and actions is what you're saying, okay, increase heat, decrease heat increase the fan, turn off the fan, et cetera. And by the way, it's not just temperature. In this case, it's also the carbon dioxide and nitrogen levels and so on. All those are basically sensed and then the actions are being taken based on that. So that is what the conversation we would have. And we, again, trying to make it as turnkey, et cetera, mm-hmm. but recognize that every building is different. So that every building has its own climate sort of fingerprint. And so there is work required in creating the brains. So you could take a brain off the shelf and use it. You know, 
I can't say whether that would work better. It might have better energy consumption, but then you for people are not as comfortable. So you have to sort of tweak it. And the more efficient we can make this end-to-end thing, the sooner folks can realize the value. Mm-hmm. And a brain in this case is essentially a model or an agent or something yeah. like that. Is that fair? Great question. I The reason, and you know, I've had lots of folks ask me, including Bill Gates, why do you call it the brain? You know, and I think it's, it's, it's a really good question. So the way we talk about it is it's actually a collection of models. Okay. So, you know, autonomous system task sometimes needs to be decomposed into different parts. Like, for example, if, if it's a robotic hand, it had to pick up an object and to stack it. You know, you can pick up, can be, reach can be one action. Pick up can be another action. You know, move and then stack. These are all distinct actions. Mm-hmm. Now, some are pretty easy. You can almost sort of program them. You know, reaching is nowadays, you know, obviously very programmed depending on the device you have. But some need to be trained. So now this whole collection of things has to be orchestrated and the right piece has to be invoked at the right time. And each one of them either is programmed or is, is a model and it's a deep learning model with, with DRL and so on. And putting all of it together becomes the brain. In fact, that's how the human brain works. So the name is actually quite accurate, right? You've got the, the visual cortex and then you know that's the one that has a particular purpose of, and then it you know gives it to another piece which then does reasoning and then you know, you want to take the action and that invokes a different part of the brain. So that's why we call it a brain. And yeah. Okay. Going back to the HVAC example, you mentioned that a data-driven simulation. So I'm imagining you come to my company, I guess, since this is my scenario and I've got the data center, I probably don't have a simulation that exists for my data center and HVAC. And so that's immediately a big challenge if I need that to train a brain. Absolutely. Uh, But you've got a a way to generate that just from the data that I've collected? Yes. And this is something that we are having to do a lot more of as we are going and talking to customers. You know, some have a simulator. Interestingly, now, simulators, as you know, have been used for designing, modeling, testing. They've existed, but typically there's been a human on one side of the simulator driving the simulator for whatever purpose they, they want. You know, if it's flight simulator, you're you're flying it. But for our case, it's the AI which is being trained is sitting on the other end of the simulator. And so some cases we were able to take their existing simulators and to actually change the use case and still make it work. Okay. In some cases that worked great. Now, in some cases it didn't work great because their simulator was designed for a very different purpose. Like if you do CFD, you know, the purpose is to, to model this thing and you have to model it to high precision. I mean, this is going to be, you know, a plane flying through rain. So, you know, it has to be very precisely done. But each crank, you know, they typically have like, uh, you know, HPC setups for <laughs> CFD simulation. But each crank can take so much. So, so how are we going to crank it so fast that we can learn, right? So we said, well, that doesn't work. Or they just don't have a simulator at all like your case. So that's where our next step is, can you give us data? And for many folks, they have the data. If they have the data, then we said, okay, let's start how we can take data and how do we can actually make it into something that we can mate with our AI system. That worked for certain class of problems. And then we said, as the complexity of problems uh, started increasing, you know, we realized that we need a new trick up our sleeve. You know, there's a research group as part of my team, and we started looking at how can we apply deep learning to learn from this data to create simulators. There we ran into the first insight, which is that, you know, deep learning is designed for sort of inference, right? So you run one crank and you get a prediction and you're done. Well, it turns out the real world is not like that. You know, this real world is modeled with differential equations. Differential equations, basically, you've got time and you've got this thing which is continuing to change its behavior with time, depending on the previous state and the actions that are being taken. So there's some work, great work that is uh, being done right now, and we are publishing it right now. In fact, some of it is already out uh, in deep simulation networks. And basically, it's like a a neural computational fabric where you have, uh, you know, it's kind of like RNNs where you have with every crank, you know, you take the output and sort of feed it back into the next time cycle. Of course, you have to have, so the sampling of time can be actually variable. 
So you have to, that neural competitive fabric has to deal with that, which is a pretty big thing in itself. But it also allows you to have many different components inside the simulation, each which is sort of learning in a different way. For example, you know, if you're tossing a ball, the ball has its physics, and then there is the environment which has its physics, which mm-hmm. is Newtonian physics. It turns out the Newtonian physics doesn't change. You can toss a ball or you can toss up uh, water. So if you are training those components, which can be sort of these pre-trained components, if you will, you know, that can be trained once, and then you can, you know, maybe tweak it based on the object will have different physics, uh, you know, just that. But now, so you take this neural computational fabric, which plays out in time, you are now able to have multiple components, and you train this thing. This new architecture, we believe, is a pretty transformative thing in simulation because it now allows us to go after any complex simulation space, which basically has lots of differential equations that are sort of running around inside of it, and we can train it reasonably quickly. Really, it's kind of like a graph neural network because you have time and you have space if you look at the components that are space. So there's message passing, which is happening between every stage, and that allows the learning to happen. And this backpropagation, which happens in which each of the components learn. Eventually, you're able to get a trained model, which can run like a simulator. So Mm -hmm. you start with some state, you take an action, the distinct states changes, and you're able to crank it. So we're very excited about it. We think this will be a big accelerant in the approach that we have. Again, we get the data, use it, we can go at it. And this simulator can also learn from other simulators. So if you have something that is quite inefficient, you know, in terms of computation and stuff like that, this thing can learn of it and then it can execute very fast. Because once it learns the fundamental differential equations that are underlying, you know, this is just inference. It's not doing any kind of a big computation once it is trained. So that is uh, an area that we're very excited about right now. Yeah. Awesome. So first step is capture some data. Next step, use that to train a simulator using this idea of deep simulation networks, potentially. Then you mentioned kind of using that to create a brain. It sounds like part of that is, you corrected me when I said it's a model. So part of that I'm imagining is figuring out the right level of abstraction for these different components or pieces. And Mm -hmm. then individually, uh, I guess one of the questions that I had around that was, you know, when we talk about reinforcement learning in kind of a academic sense and how difficult it is to to put it to use in real world situations, a lot of it has to do with like carefully crafting this objective function or cost function and all of the issues associated with that. You describe what the customer has to do as more, you know, less about describing this objective function and maybe constraining what the solution looks like. Am I kind of reading that correctly? And maybe you can elaborate on that and help us understand. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, you've uh, you've hit the nail on the head on with the reinforcement learning. The reward specification, the reward function that you have, the specification of that becomes the next problem. In fact, we have a very famous researcher in Microsoft Research Langford, you know, he'll tell you that he says, if you have a problem and you model it as a reinforcement learning problem, you now have two problems. <laughs> and it really gets to the core of this, this thing, which is that getting the reward function uh, right. And there's lots of funny stories about bad reward functions and unintended consequences. But we, we ran into that and we still allow that in our tool chain. You know, you can specify the reward function. But now we are actually with machine teaching, we're exploring what are other ways for an expert to describe what they want done. And we've come to this uh, construct called goal. So they specify the goal using a particular approach, the semantics of which are contained within the problem and the environment. And we will automatically generate the reward function under the covers based on the goal. And we found this to be a very uh, much more approachable thing for, for our customers in fact, a lot of our new engagements with customers, most of the time we end up using goals. Okay. Um, so that's been, you know, and like I said, you know, we're on this learning thing ourselves. And, uh, you know, we're seeing what's working, what's not working, how to, how to enhance it, move from there. And so some of these like classical challenges with reward functions, like 
delayed attribution and, and things like that that you see in reinforcement learning, does goals as an approach side skirt those in some ways or are those still issues that you see in the autonomous systems world? Yeah, I mean, those are still issues we see and separately the algorithms are getting pretty good too. So mm-hmm. we see, you know, there's an active area of research and better algorithms coming up. Uh, we are, you know, we are we stay on top of that and we are incorporating more and more algorithms now into our tool chain because there are some algorithms that are better suited for certain class of problems, others which are better for suited for another other type of problems, which then of course moves the problem to the next layer, which is which one do you select for which kind of problem? And you don't want obviously folks who've never done programming or AI to say, oh, you tell me, do you want SAC or do you want this? <laughs> no idea, right? So we are also trying to put in that intelligence so that it's a it's a meta reasoning thing which says, you know, given this kind of a goal, given this kind of a problem, and this is a sampling rate, this is a state space, let's automatically select the best algorithm and we will use that for training. So, you know, nobody ever has to know like, you know, what craziness you invoked under the covers. But staying on top of this uh, has been a, a very important piece for us. You know, we use this framework called Ray, uh, which has come out of a lot of the Berkeley's, uh, you know, it's an open source framework. We are one of the big uh, users of it and contributors for it now. Uh, in fact, the Ray team, the team which is building that, my team in Berkeley are literally in the same building and one floor apart. So there's a lot of good intermingling there as well. So because we're using that framework, we Raylib is how people are adding more and more algorithms. You know, we're able to really tap into that. And what we find, of course, sometimes, you know, people will write an algorithm to publish a paper, but it's not really production grade. So then we just come back and, you know, do our own implementation of it and contribute that. So I keep pushing working that. So kind of in this journey, we started with data, we built a simulation, we built a brain out of that simulation, then that brain is able to then help me control my data center, HVAC. I'm imagining in this scenario that, you know, I still care about the safety issue that you mentioned. Maybe not, you know, it's not a drill that's going to, you know, destroy my data center, but, you know, I don't, wouldn't want the policy that you recommend to decrease the life of my coolers or chillers. And then there's also maybe explainability issues that arise, like why are you telling me to, you know, my HVAC engineer has always set the XYZ at six and you're saying it should be at eight. Why is that? Yeah. No, this is, it's such a great topic. And, you know, when I talk to my team and given my, you know, uh, experience at Microsoft, I remember when we were building Windows NT, you know, and putting networking into it and so on. You know, we had no idea how stuff was going to be attacked in you know, when the internet was starting out. In fact, my I was the development manager for the TCP/IP stack for Windows from '95 to 2000. You know, I still managed to keep some of my sanity, but I can tell you there were folks on my team who really we were pushing 20 updates a week because. We were starting to attack to every layer, bottom of the network, moving its way up, all the way up into sockets, you know, all the teardrop attacks. APIs and all that? Yeah, all that. Oh, wow. This was attacked. And then when they got to the top layer, that's when they really started the more sophisticated attacks. Mm -hmm. And that's when you probably, uh, I don't know if you remember, uh, back after Windows XP shipped, the entire team took one year to harden the system. Because it was no longer just my problem as the networking guy. It was everybody's problem. You know, people would do buffer overruns and they would insert code and all kinds. So literally every component had been. So the reason I'm telling this story is that I think the safety is a problem like that. And when we came into it, hey, we got really cool control and I can show you better performance. But then there's all this hidden stuff that you have to deal with. And that's been a big realization for us. And uh, so it's a multifaceted approach. So the first thing is, you know, you talked about like the wear and tear of the machine or breaking it down. A bunch of our use cases right now with customers are with those are factored in and actually they're factored in at the time of the teaching. So when you talk about the state space and sampling, that has to be specified so that the policy is taking that into account. So that component gets handled there. The harder safety things that are there are like when the brain is operating, like 
are we really at the mercy of this sort of a you know, deep learning uh, model, which is going to say, take this action. And then, you know, the consequences of that are actually out of scope for, uh, for, for what we're doing. And this is where we started, you know, we, we, this is going to be ongoing work. This is never done, you know, kind of like with cybersecurity right now, we're learning. It's, it's never going to be done, but we want to take some pretty concrete steps. So one very important work, and there was a NeurIPS paper that was published on this, is that you develop the policy and the policy suggests an action. What you do is you introduce another layer after that to decide if the action is a safe action or not. Now, what goes into deciding is it a safe action or not can be many things. It can be predicate logic. It can be temporal logic. You know, so you can pretty much assert no, yes, because it is outside some range that you may specify. Or it actually can be trained things itself. Like imagine adversarial models which go into that component. So now when you are specifying in machine teaching right up front, you can now start to insert ways where you know safety can be specified. And that actually follows a very different path. Some of it will actually follow the path of the policy building itself because some things can be caught there. But other things are actually more brought into bear at operations time. And that is very important because, you know, you've probably heard about some of the discussions on how like level five autonomy is going to be rolled out in cities. And they're saying, you know, take these bus lanes and stuff like that. And I think it's a wonderful idea because you're solving the other side of the equation, which is you can control. So imagine like, you know, I always talk about this example and my team just sort of looks at me strange. So imagine you have this sort of, you know, this armed robot and it is working in a space where humans are also working. It is very common. You see this in machines or in factories already. They will have a red line or dotted red line around a particular area and the humans know they're not going to go there. And now you've created a rule which says, regardless of what policy, what action the policy tells you, if it is outside of this radial, whatever distance there is, you will not take that action. Mm -hmm. So now you've created an environment in which humans and this armed robot just swinging around can actually coexist in the same place. So it's a very pragmatic approach, but it has to be part of your solution. Otherwise, you know, the engineers are right. I mean, these crazies are showing up with reinforcement learning and it's going to create all kinds of, you know, issues for for us, safety issues and so on. Yeah, I love that analogy. And just taking it one step further, it would be a lot more difficult to build into your kind of motion trajectories, for example, a way for this arm to avoid a human that steps into the zone than building something that determines that a human has stepped into the zone and just shuts everything down. And and so I think what I'm taking away from what you're saying here is that safety is a multi-layered problem. And it's not all about kind of making the neural net responsible for everything. It's about identifying, you know, how you can enforce safety in these different levels and thinking about it as a, a system, like from an engineering perspective. Exactly. I think that has been a big learning for us as well, that, you know, it's not just we solve the hardest AI problem and suddenly, you know, everything and they will come, right? No, you have to really think about it in that way. And I think this, you know, the safety layer, which evaluates after every action is, is recommended, you know, it has to be this amazing, like, this is where a lot of the new capabilities will come in in the future. You know, we talk about adversarial stuff, but you can imagine a completely separate model, which is basically trying to, it's going to give you this one or zero. If anybody human has stepped into the red line, it is going to give you a one and it's shut off, right? And that's, yep. that keeps improving the perception and things like that. So yeah, so it is it is the system thing as you as you note. And that's that's the right way to think of it. Right, right. So maybe to help us wrap up, it's the very beginning of 2021. Autonomous systems is a kind of a broad area. Where do you see things going over the next few years? How does this all evolve? Yeah, you know, we believe that we are entering the era of autonomous systems. And you know, it's always hard to predict, right? This is famous Neil Bohr thing. Prediction is hard, especially about the future. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I remember working on Windows NT, the networking of the internet. Uh, you know, these things just, they explode. And mm-hmm. some right elements have to be there for this explosion to happen. 
And I think with the breakthroughs in AI, with the focus on solving business problems in a complete way, like we talked with safety, with the industry coming along, like, you know, we've been spending a lot of time on data-driven simulators, but we believe that the simulation industry that is there, you know, we really want to partner with them. We've got great partnerships with MathWorks, you know, with, uh, so we to bring them along so that together we can create an end-to-end tool chain in which these autonomous systems can be created without, you know, requiring, you know, the level of high level of expertise that, for example, is going into a lot of the autonomous driving. I mean, the teams that are building these autonomous driving stacks are just super teams. I mean, they're super experts and they're building it all in this sort of silo way, very vertical way. We want it to be horizontal components. Then you'll have sort of the windows of autonomous systems mm. where anybody can come in, they come and describe their problem, they're able to create the brain and employ it. That's going to explode the number of autonomous systems that are out there. And I think this is great for many different things, including our climate, including you know resilience that we've seen during COVID, where logistics and these things just have to continue, production has to continue. So I think now's the time and, uh, you know, I think it's going to happen. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Gurdeep, thanks so much for taking the time to chat and sharing a bit about what you're up to there. Very cool stuff. Thank you. It's totally uh, my pleasure. And, you know, you have a great podcast, so it's great to be here talking to you about my stuff. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.